On the record on News Talk. Brought to you by PwC. Great minds think unalike. Different skill sets, diverse opinions, it all adds up to the new equation. Welcome back. Gavin Riley with you on the record this Sunday lunchtime on the record NT as always is our hashtag on Twitter. Now we've been talking today about the prospect of expelling the Russian ambassador to Ireland or getting rid of at least some staff from the Russian embassy in Rathgar. Um, Ireland's diplomatic history with Russia in its different guises is in itself a fairly complex story. Um, it was the Soviet Union which actually vetoed Ireland ever joining the UN, uh, a power that it yielded for almost a decade, uh, which is ironic to think given the events at the Security Council this week with Ireland present and Russia vetoing a resolution against its own behaviour um, in Ukraine. Um, diplomatic hostility, though, was a two-way street because it wasn't until the 1970s, long after it had been a victorious power in World War II, that Ireland even formally recognised the Soviet Union as a state in itself. And yet before that, there seemed to at least have been some collaboration uh, in the early days before independence. Uh, Donald Fallon has just dusted himself down from the National Archives, where I'd imagine he'd be going through all the paperwork <laughs> on this, uh, to come in and give us a little overview of it. Um, Donald, Irish diplomacy with Russia, uh, it predates an Irish state, and it mostly hinges just on the history of one man. Patrick McCartan, a, a really interesting guy. What, what a life he lived. He contested the presidential election in, in the 40s. He served in the Shannon into the 50s. And he was elected in the 1918 general election. So that's a good career in politics. Yeah. So he took quite a lengthy break uh, in the middle. That was kind of his second political career. And McCartan had kind of the most one of the most peculiar experiences of the Irish Revolution. He was a sort of go-between uh, between the Irish Republic, a state that technically didn't exist, you know, and it existed in our minds, of course, of mm. the Republic, and Soviet Russia, a state that very much did exist on the political world, but you know, most of the world at the time wished didn't. And as the War of Independence was was raging in Ireland, this guy, Dr. Patrick McCartan, found himself in Soviet Russia trying to secure recognition for the Irish Republic. So there's there's a, a kind of long-standing urban myth in Irish political history that the, the Bolsheviks recognised yeah, the Irish Republic. because that was what I thought when you sent in your notes for this this morning. I was like, ah, he's going to talk about how the Soviet Union rec- recognised the breakaway republic in 1916. And it turns out, maybe not so much. Lenin welcomed the rising. Trotsky was more critical but understood why, why it had happened. But formal recognition of the republic by the Russian state that was a difficult thing. Because remember, when the 1916 Rising happens, there is no Russian Bolshevik state. That comes a year later in, in, in 1917. So McCartan finds himself over there trying to get recognition for Ireland from the Bolsheviks. And his memoirs are really interesting. Of course, he says, they were always polite, but all Russians except petty commissars who lived out of Russia for some years are polite. And unfortunately, McCartan's mission was not a success. He went over in the winter of 1920. He's there into the summer of 1921. And what he wants, essentially, is a a, a recognition uh, Mm. treaty between the two states. But the view of the Russians is, look, we're more interested in securing a trade deal with Britain than recognising your little breakaway republic. Mm. And the British, who had thrown everything they called the kitchen sink at trying to overthrow the Bolsheviks when the revolution happened, eventually came to their own conclusion. If you can't beat them, Mm. trade with them. I I really like the parallels that everyone knows about Eamon de Valera uh, basically disappearing off and leaving Michael Collins to run the country while he goes and tries to get... American recognition for this new Irish state that McCartan is over there in Moscow trying to do exactly the same on the Eastern Front. Neither of them coming away with a huge amount of success. Um, McCartan leaves us with quite detailed accounts though of his time in Russia. You mentioned his memoir and he's quite revealing about what the Russians actually thought of us as a people. Yeah, his memoir is is up online to read for for free in the 
Bureau of Military History. It's a great read. He's a, a, a Tyrone doctor. He'd, he'd actually been in America. He'd done Trojan work in the United States and he kind of come into contact with Russians in America before he's dispatched over there. But it, it must have been just really, really strange to find yourself in the freezing cold Moscow of the winter of 1920. And the way he writes about it is interesting. The leaders and the rank and file of the Communist Party have such unbounded faith in their doctrines that they seem convinced that all young men and young women who are educated along the lines outlined by themselves are certain to grow up firm believers in communism. And he's not convinced. You know, as far as McCartan uh, regards it, he thinks this thing is going to collapse quite soon. Mm. And there is a kind of Russian awareness of Ireland out there. He gets a sense of that too. Uh, but he thinks maybe the experiment of Republican Ireland might last a little bit longer <laughs> than the experiment of Soviet Russia. Uh, which is is debatable depending on where you draw the finishing line. But So he he clearly thought then that this, this communist experiment, this, this idea of Soviet Russia uh, wasn't going to last. Yeah. Uh, how did that work out? Yeah, in the end McCartan was wrong because I think it's, it's fair to say as one historian has that the 20th century is the Soviet century. I mean, it's, it's the Russian Revolution. It's mm. the victory of the of the Second World War and then it culminates of course in the dissolution of the USSR but massive events right throughout the 20th century all driven by Russia and we could argue the 21st century has kind of proven to be at least in part the post-Soviet century because look at the places that we've seen in chaos Afghanistan, Ukraine, Tajikistan we could go on and on and on and mm. on and the Ireland that McCartan went over to Russia representing you know, the Ireland of the 1918 general election the revolutionary Dáil Éireann I mean that shifted form quicker than Russia you know, that, yeah. that fell apart yeah. with, the, with the treaty So by, by 1921 it was partitioned and then by 1922 it would have been replaced yeah. altogether yeah. So he accepted the treaty kind of reluctantly McCartan he took no part in the civil war um, which followed and you know Maybe that's fair enough. After such lengthy journeys across frontiers, he took an ex- extended leave of absence from politics and he'd probably earned it. Um, post-independence, uh, and this kind of brings us to something which is actually quite topical in the last couple of weeks, Ireland has been uh, you know, a neutral nation. We describe ourselves as being neutral. And I think that's probably a phrase which is maybe generally misunderstood yeah, totally. or misapplied a bit. Totally. I mean, Ireland is an independent nation. We all know we've pursued this policy neutrality. What does that actually mean? And it does not mean no interaction politically with other states, you know, mm. or, or no comment on international issues. I think when we think of neutrality, we should, we should be thinking of this as a military neutrality, yeah. which has been there. But, you know, going back into the 1940s, Sean McBride says on record in the Dáil, our sympathies lie entirely and clearly with Western Europe. So you could hardly call Ireland neutral on a whole host of things. Hungary, Czechoslovakia uh, and the like. And some of those events brought tens of thousands of Irish people protesting out onto the streets. You know, enormous clerical opposition to the Soviet Union uh, in Ireland. And you, you have to tread very carefully on this stuff. I mean, when there was a, a demonstration in Dublin against the imprisonment of a Catholic cardinal in Hungary, the Workers' Union of Ireland, the Larkinite Union and Jim Larkin were in the procession. So even on the left, there was a kind of hostility towards the Soviet Union in mainstream Irish politics. And while the Irish state may have been neutral when it came to matters military, military, politically, we were anything but neutral. So if our sympathies then are, are with the West, as McBride outlined, is that the reason then why, when, when it came to trying to take our place among the nations of the world, that the Russians were the ones who said, hang on lads, not just yet? Yeah, the air was not particularly good between us. Ireland applies to join the UN in 1946 and it's vetoed by the Soviet Union and, and they point toward our, our World War II military neutrality and in a line that sounds a little bit like Winston Churchill's victory speech after the end of the war, remember Churchill accused us of frolicking to our heart's content with the Germans mm. and the Japanese. I don't, I, I don't know where he got the Japanese from, but he accused us of frolicking to our heart's content <laughs> with the Japanese. <laughs> what were we doing what to help we? the Japanese? <laughs> oh, <laughs> well, who knows? Anyway, yeah. the, the Soviets insist in, in the 40s when it comes to the UN, and I like how they, they personify Ireland in female forms. So they know a little mm. bit about the country. Her behaviour is hardly calculated to help 
her admission to the United Nations. You know, they argued that this mm. little country could not be trusted uh, at UN level. And uh, it, this wasn't just a, a short-running thing either. So Ireland then obviously still wants to, to take its place at the UN. But this idea of, of the Soviet Union getting in the way goes on for quite a few years. It goes on until 1955. So for basically a decade, the Soviets are blocking Irish membership uh, into the UN. I think four separate occasions they, they say no. And I think really, as far as they were concerned, the composition of the UN was basically overwhelmingly Western. And I think they were distrustful of us because they probably regarded us as politically very much aligned to the, to the US. Mm. And this was a two-way street, as all politics is. You know, the US were basically opposing the applications of countries like Albania, uh, Mongolia at the same time, who they felt probably leaned yeah. uh, towards towards the you Russians. Could, you could argue in, in a little bit of a segue that, or a little bit of a tangent that the, the reason why the UN was overwhelmingly Western is because most of the Eastern states had actually just been merged into one single Soviet Union. So had, had they split up into yeah. 15 member states, maybe it would have been a little bit more balanced that Absolutely. way. Absolutely. It just reflected the, the, the geopolitics and the landmass of, of what was now the Soviet Union. Mm. But I mean, embassies didn't follow between our countries until, until the 1970s, which is extraordinary. Wow. And that kind of diplomacy, embassy diplomacy, is something Ireland was really, really good at. You mm. know, We mentioned this before on, on the slot. Our Nigerian embassy opened in 1961. They achieved their independence in 1960. You know, Ireland is often very quick on the ground yeah. when it comes to probably We to needed diplomacy. to send someone over for consular services for all the missionaries, probably. Absolutely. That was a very, very important one for us. But there was no formal recognition of the Soviets until the 1970s. And when you look into the newspaper archives, the public feeling on this issue was unbelievable. The idea of the Russians opening an embassy in Dublin, it put real political pressure on, on Gareth Fitzgerald, the government of the day. And the American embassy, crucially, were in his ear saying, you know, what? what is this about? Mm. They're going to use this as a base from which to spy. So eventually the Russians did come to Ratgar. But this is, as you say, this is 30 years after the Second World War. It's yeah. remarkable. Um, it also must have just been really weird at the time to have your, your membership of the UN vetoed by a country that you yourself didn't recognise. That just just a very curious, uh, very Irish state of affairs. Um, after the collapse of the Soviet Union then, towards the end of the 1980s, um, there was some recognition of the role of some of the reformers and even Mikhail Gorbachev was granted the freedom of Dublin. Yeah, Gorbachev was given the freedom of the city and there's great archival footage of him walking around the Liberties, you know, meeting the locals, <laughs> which is on YouTube today. That's, I've never seen that's anything a like shock. it. Wow. Can, you, can you imagine Barack Obama walking through Francis Street and Mead Street, shaking hands with the butchers? But that, that's exactly what Gorbachev did. And Dublin City Council noted that he received it in recognition of his contribution to democracy, world peace and his work for openness and reform both in the Soviet Union and in Eastern Europe. That's a very calculated political move when yeah. you think of who the freedom of the city has been given to. It's given to Mandela, uh, it, it's given to Gorbachev. So yeah. it's an interesting insight, I suppose, into, into post-Soviet yeah. uh, maybe, uh, maybe relations. Maybe seen as the, the most Western of the Eastern leaders. Um, some ponder, and this is something we've already been discussing in the programme today, if the Russian ambassador is going to remain. Um, but there have been tensions before with the, the denizens who are out running the, the embassy. What was the Soviet embassy, now the Russian embassy in Rathgar? Yeah, and look, Ireland's relationship with, I call it the new Russian state, because it is a very, very young state. I mean, I am older than the Russian state we know today, you know. And that relationship has been sometimes very, very tetchy. Uh, in 2011, and I'd totally forgotten this had ever happened, there was a, a significant media storm at the time. Ireland expelled a Russian diplomat when it emerged that a network of 10 Russian spies who'd been li living in the US, uh, some of them were using bogus Irish passports. And I think one reason this was a big story was it came around the same time as a similar scandal involving Mossad, yeah. which resulted in tension with the I, Israeli I remember embassy. the Mossad one, the, the Israeli one, the idea that they were producing bogus passports, but I don't remember the Russian Which is extraordinary. Yeah. It's just totally faded from memory. But you know, maybe one reason we don't remember it mm. is what they were up to. Because in the case of the Russians, the BBC wrote that their, their penetration of the American establishment seems not to have got much beyond attending parent-teacher meetings and posing on Facebook. So. Well, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Russian or 
disoriented posting on Facebook, I think, <laughs> did, did a little bit more of an impact. Yeah, yeah, and perhaps you don't need the, the, the passport of Sean yeah. O'Shaughnessy in your, in your well, pocket yeah, to do well, it. Yeah, we, we did also, as well, after 2011, so I'd forgotten that we'd expelled some diplomats then, but then there was, um, in the last couple of years, after the, the Novichok incident in, in Salisbury, that there was a coordinated expulsion of diplomats, including some from, from mm. Afghar as well. So there's and a little bit of a history there. Ultimately, I mean, it, it's fascinating to think that from the days of Lenin, you know, when, when, when Patrick McCartan was talking to Bolsheviks in, in New York City and then in Moscow, right through to the contemporary day, that there is this bizarre story of back and forth. Uh, diplomatic history is fascinating. But I suppose, what are we? We are ultimately a very small country with influence beyond our size. That is the end product of a diaspora. And look, it's a curiosity of our own history and geography that one of the key centres we've emigrated to and the nearest one, it's also the central opposing protagonist of our own history. Mm. But I think it's the it's the other one. It's not Britain, it's the United States, you know, which has far more influenced how nations like Russia uh, have come to view us. I mean, mm. that is why we have always been a source of interest uh, to them. And, you know, perhaps it's also shaped how we came to view them. Uh, Donald Fan is the author of Henry the Street from Tenement to Suburbia, which is something, obviously, not only a, a book that might interest anyone who's interested in the social journey of Dublin, but it didn't cop until this morning when I passed an advertising hoarding, Donald, that the very building that you've written the book about is actually available to visit. It is, yeah. 14 Henrietta Street back, open to tours. Come along, learn the story of not just Tenement Dublin, but Georgian Dublin too. Go and have a look and Donald is also the presenter of the Three Castles Burning podcast about Dublin history which you'll find anywhere you get your audio online. That is all that we've got for you for this week. Big thank you to the production team led today by Simon Keane also featuring Anna Wenglerchik and also with Peter Malloy on sound. We're back next Sunday morning at 11 o'clock. Off the ball is next. From me, Gavin Riley and all the team. Enjoy the rest of your Sunday. 